You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Uh, it's a great truth. I hope you were, you, were, you were paying attention to that this morning. And I know sometimes if there's not a lot of response, it doesn't mean you weren't listening. But I hope that it doesn't mean you weren't listening. Because th- that he's an amazing God. And if we don't get anything else out of this day, and that's the only truth we get, that's all we need. He's an amazing God. And I hope that you will, today, if you leave Eastside with nothing else, that's the message you get. And uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 is where we'll be. Go ahead and stand. And uh, as we turn, we'll, we'll stand in honor of the reading of the scripture here this morning. Genesis 11. And uh, we're back in Genesis this morning. Last week we were out for a week. But we're going to jump right in this morning, read the text, and get into it today. It, uh, this, this text, it, it really is a transitional text from the first part of the book of Genesis to the rest of the Bible, honestly. Because to this point, God has dealt with man in a general kind of way, but he's about to focus in on one man. And that one man that he focuses in on really uh, introduces God's plan of redemption and his kingdom work for the rest of mankind. This is a very important person, and and that is the life of Abraham, is what we'll be starting this morning. And Abram is what he's called in this passage before the Lord changes his name. And this, this passage, the text really begins in verse 10, Genesis eleven ten. We're not going to read all of this genealogy here today. Um, but it starts, it says there in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Does anybody remember who Shem is? Whose son is Shem? Noah's son. And if you'll remember, Shem is the son that God promises to bless the earth through. He's the one that God is going to bless um, mankind. He was the, he's the one that got that prophecy over in Genesis 9. And so his genealogy of Shem leads directly then down to Abram. Look down at verse 24. So we've got a lot of begats, a lot of begats. And finally you get to verse 24 and it says, And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah and 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So there's the first mention of Abram. Look down in verse 27. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. There's another name you probably recognize it says in verse 28, and Haran died. So one of the sons, um, Abram and Nahor, were still alive. But Haran died before his, his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took him, them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai or Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. 
And that's really the phrase I want to focus on. They came to Haran and dwelt there, but we'll keep reading. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old, when he departed out of Haran, that place where they went and dwelt and where Terah died. Verse 5, it says, And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. We're going to stop our reading there, but I want to just ask you this question. Have you ever done something halfway? Meaning you gave half of your effort and you know it. You, you tried maybe half-heartedly. You didn't really give it your best and, and, and you knew it afterwards. You regretted it afterwards. Ever, anybody ever done that in your life? You've done something just halfway and you knew it. Well, that's what I'm talking about this morning. I'm calling this today halfway obedience. Because Abram's a great, a great example of faith but he also gives us a picture of what it's like to only obey partway and the dangers of halfway obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this passage. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for Abram and his example. And I thank you for his faith. And I pray that you'd help us to learn from him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've discussed before, the book of Genesis... If you read the book of Genesis, you always want to pay attention when you come across the word generations. I mean, as generations, it, it really divides the book up. When you come across the word generations, it means um, now we're starting a focus on a new character. And this is what became of that character's ancestors. The previous section that we've been dealing with for a while was the generations of Noah. And now we're past the generations of Noah. We come to verse 10 here in chapter 11, and we come to the generations of Shem, which Shem is Noah's son, the one that would be blessed. And then we come even a little further, and we get down to verse 27 in Genesis 11, and you see now these are the generations of Terah. So we, we go from Noah, then we go to his son Shem, and we have a genealogy, and then we come to verse 27. It says these are the generations of Terah. We know Terah is Abram's father, but the focus of a large part of the rest of the book of Genesis is on the family of Terah. What became of the sons of the family of Terah? And really, we know that the focus of the rest of the passage or the rest of the book is on Abram. Abram or Abraham. I might call him both today because just because he's called Abraham after the Lord changes his name. Right here, he's called Abram. But Abram or Abraham is the central figure of the book of Genesis. It would be easy to argue, honestly, that apart from Christ, Abraham is the most central, important figure in all of the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ. If you think about it, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis cover the period from creation until Terah, Abram's father. Well, the rest of the book of Genesis, the next, well, the next 14 chapters cover Abram's life directly. So you've got 11 chapters and it equals 2,000 years 
from creation to Terah. And then 14 chapters are just about Abram's life. I mean, that's how important and how central he is to the story. And he's not just important to the Old Testament. He's also important in the New Testament as well. He's the father of the nation of Israel. He's the father of the Jewish people, which means he's the individual from which God singled out and said, I want you to be the father of my people from which comes the Messiah, from which comes Jesus Christ. That means, folks, that God's plan to bring, uh, to redeem the entire human race, it really began, begins with this man right here, Abram. Through this one individual, God would bring, bring eternal blessings to the rest of mankind. He would alter the, horse, the, 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 the course of human history. And Abram is singled out by the Jews. He's also singled out by the Christians. He, he's even singled out by those of the Islamic faith as the father of their faith. I mean, he, as if that's not enough, if you go to the, the, um, the, you know, the most infamous junior church song of all time is about Abraham. Father Abraham. That very biblical, scriptural song, Father Abraham, and the one that you use when the kids are rambunctious and you want to wear them out a little bit, right? So I might, we may do it this morning to wake you up a little bit. We'll see. Father Abraham. You know, it's amazing when you think about how central Abraham is to the Bible. I mean, if you go to the New Testament and you read in Luke 16, and it's the story of, of, of Lazarus and the rich man, and in Luke 16, Jesus refers to heaven. What does he refer to heaven as? Abraham's bosom. I mean, you talk about a central character. See, to this point, for 2,000 years, from creation until Terah, God has shined his light on the earth like a floodlight. You know, a floodlight, it just kind of shines its light on a broad area. But from Terah on, it's like God now shines a spotlight. And he's focusing not just on anybody who will come and respond to God. He's now focusing on this one man from whom the Messiah will eventually come. You know, and if you think the, re- I mean, the rest of the book of Genesis, it's not about Abraham. He dies in 14 chapters later. But the rest of the book of Genesis is about his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson Joseph. But the first mention right here in Genesis 11 is Abram. And, but re- and I know I'm not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 12. Uh, that really gives us the covenant with Abraham, the, God, the promise God made. And that's such a big subject. We're not going to probably deal with it very much today. I really want to keep most of our focus here in Genesis 11, where we see Abram's name first mentioned. After the story of the Tower of Babel, that great debacle in Babel, we come to this genealogy beginning in verse 10. And again, it says, these are the generations of Shem. And if you'll remember, a a few weeks ago, we talked about the different types of genealogies in the Bible. There are linear genealogies, which is really just one man had this son, had this son, had this son, had this son. And it's really just trying to connect you back to something. We also have this other genealogy, which is um, what kind of a segmented genealogy, which is this man had these sons. Those sons had all these sons and the family branches, the family tree really branches out far. That's not the purpose here in Genesis 11. The purpose here in this genealogy is God is showing uh, the, the readers, which do you remember who the readers are? Who is reading this for the very first time? The children of Israel. And between what and what are they reading this? They're reading this after they get out of Egypt, sometime before they go into the promised land, right? So if you can imagine how important it was for them to trace their lineage back to Shem and Noah and eventually Adam. 
they needed the reassurance that they really were God's people, that God really had made this promise to Abraham. And these genealogies are very important for the children of Israel. It's not just something they throw in there just to keep us busy, because if you've ever gotten started in Chronicles, you know how hard it can be to get through Chronicles sometimes. But the, these, these texts were important for the children of Israel. And this one is too. They needed the reassurance that God had made a covenant with their forefather Abraham and he was going to keep it with them. That's the point of, of these genealogies and that helps us to understand why they're there. But this, this section also tells us the beginning of Abram. Uh, Abram lived in the Ur of the Chaldees. Just to give you some background of him, that, the Ur of the Chaldees is in ancient Mesopotamia. It's uh, also called modern, it's modern day Iraq now. Uh, it's interesting, it was the same area uh, in which the debacle at Tower of Babel took place. And not necessarily right there in that same spot, but not far from there. So that means that Abram's ancestors or forefathers, they didn't travel very far after the Tower of Babel. They settled still in Mesopotamia, that region of the world there in the Middle East. The city of Ur, based on my understanding, was in, it was a hub of culture. It was a progressive city. It was, a, it was a, a, a center of commerce in that day. It was also known for its idolatry. It was known for the worship of a certain moon god that some called Nana or Nanar or Sin. It's, a, it's the name of a moon god that was very widely worshipped in that region. We know that Terah, actually, Abram's father, was an idolater. Uh, if you, we're not going to look at it. Let me read you Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua 24, verse 2 says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So uh, before you think that Abram was this, this Jehovah-worshipping person in the Ur of the Chaldees, uh, this verse implies that he, he certainly came from idolatry, and he likely himself was involved in idolatry. It says they served other gods. Maybe not even just one god, many gods. If Terah, his father, worshipped idols, it stands to reason that Abram also was an idolater. So there's, there's no evidence that we see that Terah ever turned from idolatry to serve the one true and living God like Abram does. And that Abram's the one that God calls to be the father of his people. And, but it's still unexpected. I mean, he comes to this, this man that, that you wouldn't think in, in the middle of idolatry, from an idolatrous family. And even more so, verse 30 says that his wife was barren and she could have no children. Here's another irony or unexpected twist. God not only went to an idolater and called him out to be the father of his people, but he went to a man um, whose, whose, whose name, Abram, means father. And yet his wife is barren. You know, God never works in our boxes, does he? He doesn't go to some man that has 20 children, and, you know, a quiver full, you might say. No, he goes to a man whose name means father, but he can't even have children. His wife is barren, and he says, yes, I want you. You're the one that I want to begin this whole kingdom work. You're the one for, for my plan to redeem mankind. You're the one I want to bring that out of. And one thing is for sure, God doesn't operate in our boxes, but I'm thankful that he doesn't. It's because he's an amazing God and he can work outside our boxes. And I'm grateful for that. No, Abraham, so I'll start with Abraham's call. 
There's a lot of background here. It's a little different, but, but it's helpful. Uh, God's call came to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. And if you read Genesis 11, you know, you kind of get down to the, the end of Genesis 11 and you're reading about Terah. They go to Haran and, and they're there for a while and, and then Haran dies. And in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, you might think that that's when God called Abram. But, but that's not when God called Abram. First it says, now the Lord had said unto Abraham. Okay, so he had said this before. We could go over to the book of Acts. Stephen's sermon right before he was martyred. It says, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So very clearly the Bible says that God came to Abram before he ever left the Ur of the Chaldees. And, and again, we're not going to discuss chapter 12 very much, but I just want you to understand, here's an idolater. His father's an idolater. He doesn't probably even really know God. He, he doesn't probably have a relationship prior to this or an understanding. And God comes to him in chapter 12. Look at verse 1, and look what God tells him to do. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee, or Abram, get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. So God comes to him again. Uh, this is not a God likely that Abram was familiar with. And he comes and he says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family, okay, kindred. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to a land that I am going to show you. And then I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave everyone you've ever known except for your barren wife and go to a place I'll show you and I'll make you a father of a great nation. That's what Abram's working off of. I mean, you talk about asking a lot. It would have been another thing if God had come to Abram and he had a quiver full. And he said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. That would have been different. He doesn't even have children. He's never even been to the land he's going to. He likely doesn't know where he's going at this point. And God comes and his call is, I want you to leave it all and I want you to follow me. And if you'll do that, look at verse number two. It says, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So God comes and gives a hard command, but then he gives some great promises too. He says, if you, you follow me, and here's what I'm going to do for you, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And again, Abram's probably like, I mean, my tent is not full, God, but... I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. He promises as well. Uh, you'll be blessed in your lifetime. You're going to receive lots of blessings. He says your name will be renowned. You're going to be a blessing to other people. Those who honor you will be blessed. Those who don't honor you will be cursed. Those who reject you, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to set aside your influence though, Abram. I just want you to know your influence, it will be universal. I'm going to change the world through you. That's what he's saying. Now, without understanding the full covenant and the context of everything here, uh, uh, this sounds appealing. The first part, not so much. The commands, not so much. But the promises, they do sound appealing. And I want you then to notice, so you go from his call to his obedience. And he does obey. And I'm grateful for it. Look, it says his defining characteristic starts to become evident. He's ha he is a man of faith. Look at verse 4. So Abram departed. That's what it says. He departed. Now listen, I want you to understand, though, that this is not just um, Abram just, well, um, he's not just departing without thinking about it, though, I think. 
You know, this is, this is Abram. I, I know he says, yeah, I'll follow you, God. But he's about to learn a very important lesson when it comes to obedience. See, he, yes, he obeys. And yes, he does what he should. And listen, I'm grateful for, for immediate obedience. We, we don't see any, any sign that he delayed here. But, you know, I've used this before with my, with my kids. You know, they say slow obedience is no obedience. We use that with our kids. I remember, and I've told this story before. As a kid, I went to a Christian school, and my teacher said that one day, and I went home to my parents bragging about it. Guess what I heard? Slow obedience is no obedience. Little did I know that would be ammunition for the rest of my childhood. Why didn't I say anything? It's kind of like the time I was bad in church, and my parents promised when I got home I was going to get a spanking. And so we were walking home from church, and I said, wasn't I good in church today? And my mom said, oh, yeah, by the way, I forgot about it. I'm like, no, why did I say anything? (laughs) Slow obedience, slow obedience is no obedience. And friends, parents, it's a good lesson to teach our children that that if if our children are delaying, if they're not obeying right away, it's not full obedience. And and listen, uh, we have to be careful that we're doing the same. So is there anything in our lives that God has prompted us to do and yet we keep putting it off? So we've got to be careful um, because this whole, this whole message, it kind of, there's a turn here in a moment in that, uh, you know, maybe you've made a decision during a service and you let it fall through the cracks. Slow obedience is no obedience. Delayed obedience is not obedience. And, and even though Abram gets this first part right by obeying, uh, we soon find out there are seeds of impartial obedience that hinder him later on. I want you to notice two details about Abram's obedience. Look again. And, and look at, well, one detail especially. Look at Genesis 11. It says in verse 31, And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. And you think, okay, well, that's not bad. I mean, they're going as a family. It's a, it's a family road trip. What's the problem here? Well, the problem is that although Abram started out with immediate, immediate obedience, as far as we know... He didn't obey every part of God's command because we go from his call to his obedience and then we see there's halfway obedience. See, the Lord told him in Genesis 12, get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. Did Abram get out of his, Abram get out of his country? Yeah. I mean, he left his home. Uh, he left Ur of the Chaldees. He obeyed. But did Abram get away from thy kindred? See, that word, that word kindred means relatives. It's shortened to kin. I think you know that. But Genesis 11 says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. So he didn't leave his kindred behind. And the idea here, and you say, well, that's just cruel. No, the idea here is to leave his kindred behind and to leave his father's house means that God was saying, Abram, I want you to get away from the influences in your life that are not helping you to follow me. You need to separate yourself, even if it means separating yourself from your father, who's an idolater. I, I mean, I don't, that's not necessarily God's plan. It's not what he wants to have to happen. But there are times where we have to separate ourselves, even from the people in our lives that may love us, if they're not helping us in our walk with God. Don't forget, this father was an idolater. That, that, that influence was big on Abram. And, and we find out later, uh, when, when Jacob goes to Haran to, to go back to his family that still lived there many years later, what are they still doing? They're worshiping idols still. So Abram obeyed the first part. He left the Ur, but he didn't obey the second part. He didn't leave his kindred. 
See, this is where we start to see some halfway obedience. He obeyed, but he didn't obey all the way. And not only that, the last part of the command in verse 1 says, unto a land that I will show thee. Now, we don't know at what point that God showed Abram the land of Canaan, but we know it's the land of Canaan. That's what he's referring to. But on the other, but instead, Abram ends up in Haran. And it says that he dwelt there. He appears to be there for a while, actually. And I want to show a slide to you today to kind of illustrate this. And we've got one of our, our bulbs is going out on this side. So look on this side. This one, if you can't, you folks can't see very well. I just want, somebody else made this. And you've got over here, this is where I, most people believe where Abram came from, Ur, the possible location of his home, Ur the Chaldees. Up here, there's another possible location of Ur. Either way, it really does illustrate the point, though. So he, God wants Abram to go from here, and he's going to eventually lead him over here in Israel, the promised land. So Abram, though, I, I, I'm assuming they're doing it to not cross the desert, which probably isn't a bad idea. They go north along the river. Well, they'll have water, and they'll have sustenance, and they end up in this place called Haran up here. So you see, and I'll just leave it up there for a minute, you see that he left from here and he ends up here, but God wants him there. Are you getting the picture in your mind? God wants him to be in, in the promised land in Canaan. And he wants him to go from here to there, but they end up in Haran. And I point that out because you say, well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. They were going the route that makes sense. They're along the river, except that verse 31 says they went to Haran and they dwelt there. And if, if you, it, it means they stopped. It means that Abram established his roots. And so instead of Abram continuing down from Haran down to the land of Canaan, he basically will just say this, he stopped halfway. And he said, well, you know, it looks a little bit more than halfway. That's fine. Well, if he's from this Ur right here, he didn't even make it halfway, okay? So it all works out in the end. Work with me here, halfway obedience. It's it, it, as if it's not enough to obey halfway when it comes to leaving his kindred and leaving his father's house. He stops halfway between Ur and Canaan. And listen, I tend to think this first step of halfway obedience, which was taking his father with him, largely influenced the second step of halfway obedience, which means he stopped in Haran. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, um, just a brief study of Haran. It may, it may have been a great place to live. Maybe it's wonderful scenery, you know, the Middle East. So maybe it's beautiful over there. Except you know what, what, what Haran's known for? Known for the worship of a certain moon god. And that moon god's name is Nana or Nanar or Sin. It's all called the same thing. And it's the same god that plagued Noah, or Abram's family in the Ur of the Chaldees. And in case you think, well, I don't know that he was there that long. Look down in Genesis 12, verse 5. It says, And Abram took Sarah, Sarah his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance, look, that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. So how does that make it sound? It sounds like they were in Haran long enough to gather a lot of substance and even to gather a lot of souls. So you know what Abram did in Haran while he was there? He got wealthy. 
He built his resources. That's not an overnight stay. You can turn it off, guys. Thank you for that. No, we have to remember God has big plans for Abram. He is going to carry out his covenant relationship through Abram's descendants. He's going to allow Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to come through Abram's line. But Abram still has a lot to learn about obedience. He's not exactly where he ought to be. It means he he won't get to enjoy God's blessings until he obeys God's commands. And if you get a lesson out of this today, I want you to get that, is that you don't get to obey God's blessings until you obey God's commands. You don't get to receive all the things that God promises and, and wants to bless you with unless you obey him fully. The promises come after the commandments. So Abram is short-circuiting. What I believe what he's doing is short-circuiting what God wants to do in his life by settling short of God's expectations for his life. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Short-circuiting God's blessings in our life because we fall short of God's expectations for our lives. It, It costs us a lot, and it costs Abram too. Anytime we obey halfway, it costs us. And there are some truths about halfway obedience I think can help us here. And the first is this. Halfway obedience is disobedience. Slow obedience is no obedience. Halfway disobedience, folks, it's disobedience. One partial disobedience led to more. He, he took his father and Lot, they ended up in Haran. And when we obey halfway, it affects where we end up. And you might say, but at least he obeyed. And that's true at first. I mean, he left the Ur of the Chaldees. But listen, the point of God sending Abram out was... So let's just say Abram started right here in Ur of the Chaldees. God's point in telling him, I want you to leave Ur, was not to take a step and say, well, at least I'm out of Ur. No, God wanted to take him from Ur. And you follow me, live stream guys? And come all the way over here and take him to the land of Canaan. God's point was not just that, uh, you might, I hope I don't give you a um, carpal tunnel up there, Brother Andrew. You're going back and forth. God's point was not just that he leaves right here. It's that he ends up over there. And see, when God calls us to do something, he asks us to do th- something. He doesn't just say, as long as you take a step, that's all I want. No, he wants to take us from here all the way to over there. And that's how God works. See, a lot of people think that God is this mean God and he just says, no, I just don't want you to be there anywhere but there. So you take a step and he's like, no, anywhere but there. No, that's not how he works. He says no to this so we can say yes to that over there. He doesn't just, just, doesn't just come and, you know, make us leave our roots and, and, and leave where we are and get uncomfortable just so that he can laugh at our calamity. No, he has to say no to something like that so we can say yes to something greater. See, halfway obedience is a lateral move. See, halfway obedience, if I'm right here and I go halfway... You say, well, I'm, you're better than you were. It's still just a lateral move. It's not everything God wants you to be. It takes us from where God doesn't want us to be, sure. But, but it also puts us where God doesn't want us to be. See, Ur to Haran was a lateral move for Abram. And you say, well, at least he left Ur, but he wasn't in Canaan. Abram's really no better off in Haran. Those idolatrous influences, they're still all around him. And I imagine that Abram probably thought by making progress, that's good enough. 
But folks, here's where people get messed up about halfway obedience. Is they assume it's better than straight up disobedience. See, but I believe, honestly, I believe halfway to obedience is more dangerous than outright disobedience. Because we're deceived into thinking we're doing all right and we're really not. See, that's the danger of halfway obedience. Because we find ourselves saying, well, at least I'm not in error. Yeah, you may not be in error, but right here isn't where God wants you to be. And right here is not where God wants you to be. And right here is not where God wants you to be. Anywhere you end up, that's not where God wants you to be, is in the wrong spot. So here's the greatest danger of halfway obedience. Halfway obedience is disobedience under the cloak of progress, which makes, uh, makes it worse than disobedience because we think we're doing okay. Under the cloak of progress. We think, well, you know, at least I've, I'm not where I was. No, that's deceptive. It makes you think you're doing well because you've made a little progress. But if you're not moving toward your destination, it's not obedience. James chapter 4 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Folks, you might say, yes, I'm, at least I'm out of err. But if you're not where you know you're supposed to be, the Bible says it's sin. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And I'm asking you today, in what ways are you only halfway obeying God in your life? Is there some sinful habit in your life and you know you should get rid of it? You know God has been telling you to get rid of it for a long time and you know that you shouldn't still be there and yet you're still there. And you find yourself saying, well, at least it's not as bad as it used to be. Well, maybe so, but you're not where God wants you to be. It's halfway obedience. It could be a habit that's not a sin. There's plenty of those in our lives that they're not sins, but they're not the best thing for us. And you say, well, at least it's not a sin. No, but if it's not the best, the Bible says, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. If it's not what God wants for you, what you know is his best for you, it's still sin. I mean, these are, the applications are endless. I'm thinking about at work, and most of us have a job, or we work a job, we have responsibilities. And listen, over here in Ur would be the very, very bare minimum we could do. And as long, but we've taken a few steps. And at work, we've been working there long enough that we're kind of used to it. It's not very exciting anymore. And so we're just doing enough to really get by. And that's, I mean, hey, if you're getting a paycheck and that's okay, I mean, that works. Well, but as a child of God, who's supposed to have a testimony in your workplace of not just barely getting by like everybody else does, but doing the very best that you're supposed to be doing way over there, um, it's halfway obedience. See, and never at any point in the scripture are we told to compare ourselves to other people. No, our standard is Jesus Christ all the way over there. And if I've taken a few steps and just because I'm doing better than my coworkers, it doesn't mean I'm all the way where I'm supposed to be. And if I'm not in the right spot, folks, I'm in the wrong spot. Maybe in your service to the Lord, you should be doing more. And listen, I mean, I hear things all the time and yet we don't have all of our ministries back doing what we want to be doing. But I still scratch my head at times when I hear there's not enough nursery workers. 
know, in a church our size, how could we have a ministry like, I mean, that ministry helps the services tremendously in here. It allows us to focus on the Lord and not have the extra distractions. I love children, but if they're not ready to sit and listen and, and, be, and, and be a part of the, the environment that helps us pay attention, then we, we, we have a nursery for that. I mean, we have classes for the, we, we want to help the children where they are, but, but to not have enough nursery workers. I mean, it leaves me scratching my head, and I just have to ask, is there some lady in here that says, I know I should be helping in there, but I just haven't been, and I, I need to step out from the halfway obedience. Is there some other spot at Eastside Baptist, and you know you should be doing it, and you're just not, and serving the Lord, and God's prompted you even at times. Maybe he's prompted you to hand out a tract. He's prompted you to invite somebody to church that, that you see on a regular basis and you say hi and you're friendly, but you haven't invited him. It's halfway obedience, folks. Don't assume that just because you're not where you used to be that you're where you're supposed to be. I'm grateful for progress. I am. But if we become content with progress, then our standard has become where, where we used to be and not where we're supposed to be. And I think a lot of God's people, and I'm not even saying at Eastside Baptist Church, but I think the temptation is there. I think a lot of God's people are content with the progress they've made, and they stop and settle somewhere rather than being all they're supposed to be for Jesus Christ. And you're saying, I'm okay with being a two or a three on the Christian scale because, hey, at least I'm not an er anymore. Well, it's never been the standard. The standard is always, no, what does God want me to be? Halfway obedience also means that we delay God's blessings. Number two. So halfway obedience is disobedience. Halfway obedience, number two, means we delay God's blessings. And it sounds obvious, but it's true. God's blessings don't come until God's commandments have been obeyed. See, and this might be the primary theme of the entire book of Genesis. When we obey, we're blessed. When we don't obey, there's consequences. In Abram's case, this halfway obedience equaled delayed blessings. And God wanted to bless him with all the promises, but he couldn't until Abraham was in the right place. And I'm not saying that Abram had to be perfect to be blessed, but he needed to at least be headed in the right direction. Abram's problem was not that he went to Haran. It was that when he got to Haran, he stopped there for too long. And he needed to be making some progress. And you say, well, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be, so don't judge me for it. I'm not judging you for it. I'm saying you don't be content with where you are. That's the point, is always be taking a step. Always be moving toward where God wants you to be. When we get to a place and we're in a rut and we're just stuck there, we won't have God's blessings. See, what's interesting is if you do a study on the proper names of this passage, they start to tell you a story. See, Abraham's father, his name was Terah. And Terah, guess what Terah means? Terah, do you know what it means? Terah Biles? No? Terah, in the, in the book, I'm, I keep saying her name and she keeps... You know, looking at me, are you talking about me? No, Tara, spelled this way, you know what it means? It means delay. It means delay. So in Abram's life, yeah, Kina, does she ever make you late? No, never, sorry, I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> oh, boy, Kina has a lot to learn. Okay. That would have been a good time to maintain silence there, brother. We'll set up counseling later. Okay. You know, how fitting, though. In many ways, God's plans for Abram were delayed because of his father. See, delayed obedience means delayed blessings. 
And one other interesting study is the word Haran or Haran in the New Testament in, the, in Acts 7. It's, it's Karan, Karar is the root. It looks like the word char. It means to melt or be hot, to be scorched, to burn. It literally means to dry up. Barrenness. And I hope the picture becomes clear. When you obey halfway, you become barren in your Christian life. When you delay movement toward God, you dry up like a fire that burns through and just kills all the life inside. Halfway obedience will dry you up. Abram left Haran with all kinds of material wealth, but it doesn't mean his stop in Haran was successful. And a lot of people, they're going to leave their present job with lots of material wealth and lots of resources. And they really, they really multiply their wealth and their 401k and they move on up in the world and they've got all kinds of things. But if you look at their spiritual life, they delayed their walk with God so much that spiritually they're dried up. And yeah, they have all kinds of wealth and all kinds of resources, but their spiritual life isn't anywhere where it's supposed to be. Men, have that ever happened to you in your workplace, in your job? You get so caught up in what you're doing that you leave your spiritual life behind. And yeah, you're making some progress physically, but spiritually, it's all dry. See, halfway obedience will dry you up. Abram left Haran with all kinds of material wealth, but it doesn't mean his stop in Haran was successful. In, in his delay, his terror, it seems that God intended, his, God's intended blessings for him dried up Haran. And when you delay obedience, you find emptiness in your spiritual life. And I'm asking you today, is your spiritual life dried up? Is your walk with God empty have you lost your zeal for serving the Lord? Are you just going through the motions and you say something about that describes me? And I have to say, well, maybe you need to go to some area in your life where way back when you decided to practice halfway obedience. And because you practiced halfway obedience and it's been that way sometimes in our lives for 10 or 20 or 30 years, a long time we've been practicing halfway obedience and because of that our spiritual lives are dried up and we've lost our zeal, we've lost our excitement. It's time to go back to where you started obeying just halfway. Get that right. Because halfway obedience third means God's intervention. It's disobedience, it delays his blessings, but it also means that God will have to intervene. Look at verse 32. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, some find it interesting, some have focused on, Haran, on Terah. If you'll notice, one of his sons' name was Haran, and his son died. And they, they say, well, he got to Haran, and he was never able to get over that. And he stopped in Haran living in the past. Couldn't move forward. And I think it's a great point, but, but it's not the point of the text because this is about Abram. So we're going to move on, but study that for yourself if you want to. I think it's interesting. But I know it sounds harsh, but listen to this. Terah had to die in order for Abraham to move on. And that delay had to be removed from his life before he could move on to where God wanted him to be. He had to release something and move forward. Abram's full obedience was hindered by his father's influence. And I'm asking you today, what's your delay in obedience? 
What are you waiting on before you obey? What's delaying your obedience to God? Is it your own plans? Is it your own timing? Is it your fear of surrender? When it comes to halfway obedience, God will not let you dwell there too long before he intervenes in your life. And for Abram, it meant his father had to die so he can move forward. And right now, you've got a delay and you've got an excuse for not following the Lord. You've got something that's delaying you, something holding you back. And you have two options. You can either leave the excuse behind and move forward for God on your own. Or you can put God in a position to take it from you with consequences. See, you have a choice. You say, yes, there's a delay in my life, and yet I have not been doing what I should be doing. And Lord, I want to release that today and move forward for you. Or you could put God in a position where he has to step in and remove what it is for you. And I can tell you that option is far less attractive. Like when our kids were were little, I need to take a drink here. When our children were little, we'd have them sitting at the table, and not all of them were good eaters. Some of them would eat well, some of them wouldn't, but there's always something that they didn't like. And you'd sit them at the table, put a little bit on their plate, and we're, we were the kind when they were little, it's like, no, you have to eat what's on your plate. So they would sit there sometime for a long time, staring at peas or staring at, at cut carrots. Enough gravy, it's okay, but just by it, no, boy, I struggle still with cooked carrots. <laughs> I'll eat them, but man, give me gravy, okay? (laughs) But, you know, they stare at it long enough, and you get to a point when they're old enough, you say, listen, you can either eat your food, or you can get a spanking and eat your food. (laughs) So the choice is, you can either obey on your own, or you can obey with pain. And we say, well, that's just cruel. Well, no, it's a lesson for life because we all have to go through it too. We can either obey God or we do it with pain. See, God wanted Abram to move to the promised land and Abram had a delay in his father. And rather than just moving on on his own, I believe what it sounds like to me in this passage is God had to remove the delay out of Abram's life so that he can move forward for God. It meant the removal of his own father. I mean, that, that's heavy stuff. But it puts us in the position to examine ourselves. What is it in your life that God's going to have to remove so that you can be what you're supposed to be for him? I'd much rather take it and offer it freely rather than God have to come down and take it by force. See, either obey and experience God's blessings or delay and experience the consequences. There's all kinds of application, and I'm just asking today, is there halfway obedience in your life? Is there something that you know you should surrender in your spiritual life? I mean, is it your your walk with the Lord? Is it your Bible reading? And every year you start out, say, I'm going to read through my Bible this year, which, by the way, I challenge every child of God to do. And you get a few days in and you stop. It's halfway obedience. Uh, maybe in, in, in involvement in church here. And, and listen, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say if, if you feel like God wants you to be at Eastside Baptist Church, I, I say, come be a member at Eastside Baptist Church. You know, by being a member, um, it's accountability, it's commitment. 
It also puts you in a position where you could actually contribute and serve. I think everyone should be. It's the same idea that, you know, in our culture, we say, well, people, two people in a relationship and they say, well, you know, I don't really want to commit. It's just a piece of paper. So that means I can, they can walk away whenever they want to. Well, church membership, we say that doesn't work. Well, church membership is the same way. It's you coming and saying, um, I will commit to this because I want to be accountable to this and I want to contribute to this. And if you feel like God wants you here, we've got, I mean, Eastside Baptist Church can be your church family, man. We, we'd welcome you with open arms. But maybe that's your halfway and you say, well, I'm attending. No, well, maybe it's time to take the next step. Or maybe you're a member and you're not very involved. And you're, you say, well, I'm a member and I, I mean, I'm, I'm here at services, most services, but you're not actively doing anything to help the cause. It's halfway obedience. A lot of people will say, well, I'm a member over there. And they, and they imagine that just coming and, and being at services is enough. But folks, well, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I could do that and feel good about it. I mean, let's, let's contribute to the kingdom of God. I mean, be involved in something that's, that's bigger than yourself. I think God's plan for every one of our lives is to be involved in a local church. And, and if you're a member of this church, he puts you in this body to contribute so get involved, serve, and, and give, and, and be a, a faithful attender, be in fellowship. Maybe in your spiritual life, your halfway obedience is some decision that you made for the Lord and you're not following through. It happens so much. You respond to a message, an invitation, and, and you say, okay, I'm going to do it now. And yet you find yourself in the same place you were before you made the decision. And I'm just going to encourage you today, take a step, even one step. You don't have to leap all the way from Ur to Canaan, but take a step. Start moving in the right direction. Maybe it's a relationship. For, Ter- for Abram, it was Terah. It was delaying him. Christ told his disciples, you say, well, but that's family. I understand that, but Christ told his disciples our love for him should far surpass even our love for our families. I know that's hard. To hear, And I'm not saying that we disown and that we never speak to. I'm saying we should love Jesus Christ so much that it makes all the other relationships that we have look like far lesser love. He says hate. But maybe there's somebody in your life that's not helping you in your growth. And it's time not to just cut them off, but it's time to limit their influence of some friend or some family member or some co-worker in your life. If you want God's blessings, you may have to limit that influence in your life so that you can move from Haran to Canaan. Maybe it's towards someone else and, and you're being held back in a matter of forgiveness. And you act like it's okay between that other person, when you see them at church or you see them at work or a family reunion, you act like everything's fine and, and it's fine, but you're not willing to actually take this step and forgive and get it right. It's halfway obedience unless or until you forgive. Maybe God's prompting you today or has prompted you in the past to be a blessing to somebody and to give them a note or send a word of encouragement to give some time to it. But when you see him at church, he says hello and goodbye and you move on. Listen, uh, God has a blessing in store if you will obey him all the way. The Bible says, love thy neighbor as thyself. 
You know, that, and literally your neighbors, listen, I think a lot of Christians, a lot of God's people do this, where they've got a good testimony and they say hello and everything's friendly. But listen, you may be the one contact that person has to, to be saved and spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. To love your neighbor as yourself would be to do everything you can to reach them for Christ. And it's not enough just to be a good neighbor. As God's people, we need to be witnesses. Maybe it's in salvation. And somebody here this morning, you know you're lost. And, and you've tried your whole life to maybe to make it go away and make the feeling go away. And you're working and you're striving. Listen, halfway obedience is doing all the right things, but it won't get you all the way there. I mean, Jesus Christ came all the way down and died on the cross for our sins because he knew we would never be able to do it on our own. Halfway obedience will keep you out of heaven. It's not worth it. Maybe it's your calling. God wants you to do more for him, but you're content. You're in your comfort zone. You're better than you were. No, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And God's prompted somebody in this room to do something more for Christ. And you're sitting and you're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable and you're in your comfort zone. It's time to take a step out and say, I'm not content just to be out of her. her. I want to be all the way in Canaan. Are you where you're supposed to be as a Christian? Are you, are you where fathers? Are you where you're supposed to be? Are you, well, at least I'm out of Ur. No, are you in Canaan? As a husband, are you, are you in Canaan? We heard last Sunday night from Brother Viss. Uh, love and respect. Husbands, how are we doing on our love? If, I mean, probably we've got, all got a long ways to go. Wives, are you where you're supposed to be as a wife in the respect area? Mothers, are you where you're supposed to be and how you're dealing with your children? And uh, Teenager, are you where you're supposed to be in your relationship with God? Are you in Ur or are you in Haran or are you headed to Canaan? Employee, as a teacher, listen, halfway obedience keeps us from God's blessings. Halfway obedience makes us think we're okay under a cloak of progress. But the only obedience that results in God's blessings is all the way obedience. If you want his blessings, identify your delay. Take steps to untangle yourself from it. And then discover the blessings God wants to bestow on your life. It's time for members of Eastside to stop obeying halfway. Whatever it is that God's prompted you in today, I want to encourage you to, make, to take this time to respond. Let's stand together. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Is there some area in your life that you're only obeying halfway? Is there some, something in your life that you, that's keeping you from Canaan? Is there something in your marriage? Is there something at work? Is there something in your spiritual life? Do you have a secret hidden sin? Do you, is there some relationship? Is there some delay in your growth, in your progress to get to God, to get to where he wants you to be? Is there something keeping you from where you're supposed to be? If there is, it's time to, get to, to, to lay it on the altar before the Lord, before he has to come down and do something with it for us. I don't know what your halfway obedience is today, but you're missing out on God's blessings. And it's time to come and submit it to the Lord. Identify that delay, submit it to the Lord, and finally get to where you're supposed to be. Father, thank you for the word. I pray that you'd speak through it to us. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to respond as we should this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.